1: Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935. Again, this is the program where we take your calls. We try to answer your questions about the things you care the most about. Questions about God and the historical Jesus. Questions about the Bible. Happy to take your call. Um, 303-873-1935. You know, um, we've been talking also about the Supreme Court nominee who almost certainly is going to be confirmed by the United States Senate, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. Um, But she was asked a disturbing question. Well, the, the question wasn't disturbing. The question was basically what her position was on whether or not an individual had natural rights. She said she had no position on the subject. Now this is pretty alarming because according to the constitution, every human being and every United States citizen, if you will, regardless of their race or gender or religion or social status have natural rights and see when we're talking about natural rights we're we're talking about freedom religious rights it, are we born free are we free human beings are we free to think what we want do we have a soul do we have the natural life to, to right to life and liberty and property or the pursuit of happiness. Is it true what the founding father said in the declaration of independence? We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal. In other words, even if you don't necessarily believe that you're the product of creation or that you're made in the image of God, imagine you don't have a position on whether or not human beings have the right to exist The right to think, the right to believe, the right to pray, the right to worship, the right to marry, the right to to live without interference from the government. So do we have rights by God or by nature or by government? And so imagine if her position is, well, we don't, I have no position on whether or not human beings have natural rights. (sighs) Wow. 303-873-1935. That's the number. If you want to join me on the program, let's see who's up. Patty, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, thanks for taking my call.
1: Hey, you're welcome.
2: So what I'm curious about I'm not quite sure when we have to stand before Jesus on judgment day is he going to go through all of our sins or is is he going to say you're forgiven
1: Well it depends on who you are and what your relationship is like with God and whether or not you've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit There are different judgments There's one judgment called the great white throne judgment, which is referred to as the, the judgment seat for the unbeliever, for the Christian, for the person who's given his or her life to the Lord Jesus Christ, who believed that Jesus lived and died and came back to life. And they, they're trusting him for salvation. The issue of salvation from sin has already been satisfied, in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, Paul writes, he says, for we all, for we shall all stand before the God's judgment seat. Now, in that particular phrase, I think he means believer and unbeliever, but I think he's focusing on the believer because that's the context. He says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In 2 Corinthians 5:10, it says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So in the context, this isn't a judgment of Christians on whether or not they're going to go to heaven or hell. The, it's, this is the, the judgment of the presence or the absence of rewards. The way that I would think about it Is that way? Our sins are forgiven. We're not going to be condemned for our sins. In Romans 8 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is a word that means the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes or for sins that are committed. So does the Bible say you're going to still have to give an account? Yeah. You're going to have to stand before Jesus or kneel before Jesus, or do something before Jesus, and then you're going to have to explain your life. Now, again, this explanation, I think, is going to be the presence or the absence of rewards. So the way I like to think about it is like going to the Olympics. Imagine you are... um, a world-class athlete and you get to represent the united states of america in the olympics well what if you don't win the gold or the silver or the bronze is there is there a certain amount of joy that comes from the fact that you get to participate in the olympics in other words it's the presence or the absence of reward so some of the things we might be judged on well did you actually obey Jesus? Did you obey the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Did you faithfully serve him? All Jesus said, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In First Corinthians 9 4, it talks about um serving Jesus and serving others. In Romans 6, it talks about walking in victory over sin. In James chapter 3, it talks about controlling your tongue. Um, the Bible talks about receiving crowns because you faithfully served Jesus, and those crowns are described in a number of different places. Um, there, It's the Greek word stephanos, which was—it was—, it, it was the the crown that was awarded for athletes who participated in the games. And the Bible talks about an imperishable crown, a crown of rejoicing, a crown of righteousness, a crown of glory, a crown of life. So these become, I think, types, figures, metaphors of rewards that you receive because you love, serve, and obey Jesus.
2: Okay, well, let me ask you this, into because this is where I think I've gotten confused sometimes. I believe, and I can't quote the scripture, it says that God, something about, you know, God forgets your sins in the scripture. If well,
1: you, remember. If you
2: tra- y- repent and. Yeah, you know, you yeah,
1: God. But, yeah, there is there, a, a sense in which God forgives and, and forgets. <clears throat> but remember, it's on the basis of what Jesus has done. It's on the basis of what Jesus has done, and that's, that's the idea. It isn't that God forgets your sin because he's absent-minded. He's an absent-minded God, but that you are forgiven in Christ. In, in other words, this is the teaching of the Bible, that God sees your righteousness as his righteousness.
2: Okay, but you still have to give an account.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you still have to give an account. Oh, God. And you know what? (laughs) Trust me, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that you're going to be held accountable for everything.
2: Okay.
1: It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It should cause you... Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935, (laughs) 303-873-1935. It's so hard to understand and process everything that's going on in this great, big world world, but I'm trying. 303 873 1935. That's the number. If you want to join me on the program. And um so much we've been talking about. And happy to continue to take those calls. 303 873 1935. When we were talking with the earlier caller about um Judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. You know, if our sins are being forgiven, then what are we being judged for? Well, according to Romans chapter 14, verse 10 and Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, even Christians will, in fact, have to give an account of their life. And that's what Paul says, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. In context, it's clear that that these are Christians, these are not unbelievers. The judgment seat of Christ, therefore, involves believers giving an account of their life to Christ. And so so many of us might think, well, what in the world? And, And by the way, does that terrify you? Or does it give you a sense of anticipation? In the sense of you're ready to receive what God has for you. Now, like I repeatedly, what I like I repeatedly have said, the judgment seat of Christ doesn't isn't an issue of salvation. That issue was already resolved for those people who have given their life to Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus has made it clear that we're not. Unsaved, we're saved. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By that, that word propitiation is a word that, that is used to describe the satisfaction um, of, of, of an offended party. So the idea that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, Jesus satisfied the sacrifice of Jesus is satisfying to God for crimes and sins that have been committed for those who love and trust Jesus. So the judgment seat of God doesn't determine salvation. But rather, our faith and trust is what determines our salvation. Obviously, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say believes and then goes on to live a perfect life. Now, again, this is not an advertisement of, of living your life in rebellion and disobedience against God. All our sins are forgiven. We won't be condemned for them. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And by condemnation, it's it's a word that means, like I said, the judicial pronouncement of guilt by a judge. It's a legal term. So I don't think it's necessarily appropriate to look at the judgment seat of Christ as God judging our sins. But I think it is appropriate to think about it as a place of the presence or the absence of reward based on how well we've served the Lord or obeyed the Great Commission or how victorious we were over sin how well we controlled what we said. And so when the Bible talks about receiving crowns, these are things that we receive based on having faithfully served the Lord. And I'm happy to talk about that. And by the way, we have a wonderful article that's posted. It got questions, your questions, um, biblical answers on that very subject of the crowns and I'm I I might just uh talk a little bit about those I sort of hinted at it at the previous um conversation when we come back I might talk about it a little bit more but again want to give you the opportunity to call 303-873-1935 there are five heavenly crowns mentioned in the New Testament that will be awarded to believers there's the imperishable crown, and the crown of rejoicing, and the crown of righteousness, and the crown of glory, and the crown of life. And that Greek word translated crown is Stephanos. It's, that, it's the source for the name Stephen, the martyr. That word Stephanos was the one who wears the crown, or it means the the one who wears the crown or a badge of royalty. It was a prize given in the public games. It was generally a symbol of honor. And it was used during the ancient Greek names. It was a wreath or a garland placed on the victor's head as a reward for winning an athletic contest. In the ancient world, it was very much like our gold medal or silver medal or bronze medal that the winner would wear around his or her neck. So as the word is used figuratively in the New Testament, it speaks of rewards, the rewards of heaven that God gives to those who are faithful. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, it sort of talks about that in in a metaphorical sense. Do you not know that, That in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You know, one of the big things in the news right at this very moment is the return of Tiger Woods to the Masters tournament in golf this weekend. He was in a horrible car accident where he almost lost his leg. (laughs) But he's going to compete. He thinks he's going to win. And so when you look at this gifted, gifted, I'm not saying he's a, a perfect human being, but he's a gifted athlete. He probably plays better golf than anyone has ever played the game. And so Paul is arguing What kind of regimen does an athlete go through just to receive a a perishable wreath? But we an imperishable. what, What he's arguing is it's not a bad idea. It's a good idea to think about having a disciplined life. 303... 873-1935 eight seven three nineteen thirty five we'll we'll talk more about that when we come back again happy to take your calls and um, planning on taking them we'll talk about the imperishable cr- crown and the crown of rejoicing and the crown of righteousness and the crown of glory and the crown of life as we continue our broadcast but again happy to take your call and we'll plan to take your call when we come back I'll intersperse some of these these kind of interesting things 303-873-1935 i'll be back hey welcome back ladies and gentlemen this is gino geraci the number is 303-873-1935 uh let's see who is up. Lori, welcome to the program
3: Hi Gino. Hi. Um, first, I want to I want to thank you so much for letting me on your program. Apologize if I'm uh, sort of a planned topic, but I just had a question for you um, regarding your thoughts on there are some rumors that there are missing books in the Bible, and that they had been actually removed by the Vatican. I don't know if you know much about that, but I was curious what your thoughts are on whether or not you think that maybe there are some missing books.
1: Yeah, and I think the way I would quickly answer the question is no, there are not missing books, and that the the, the Vatican uh, didn't have the power or the authority to um, remove books that should have been in there and that somehow didn't make it, because the the, the books that are in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, were established into the middle of the second century. And so the way that I would think about that is that, um, no, that's more conspiracy theory kind of stuff. But the, when, we, when we talk about who decided which books go in and then how they got in— Um, The way that I would think about that, like I said, is that a, a, a book, in order to be in the Bible, had to have... Prophetic authorship. It had to be written by an apostle or, or close companion. It had to have the witness of the Spirit. In other words, it had to be true, and it had to be widely accepted in the church. So all of the New Testament documents that are contained in your Bible were there by the middle of the second century.
3: I guess I just—when um, I, I heard that rumor, I just, it just bothered me because I, I don't trust people anyway— Right. It just made me wonder if there's someone that gets their hands on something that's really good and has a really harmful intent and had some sort of authority to remove something that we needed to
1: know. Yeah, that, the answer um, is no. And the, the, and that's why I, there's there's people have devoted their lives to this subject, and that's why I confidently say your Bible and the books that are in it are the ones that are supposed to be there.
3: I certainly appreciate that answer. Thank you so much again for taking
1: my call. All right. You are welcome. 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Wendy, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, Dino. Gina, how are you doing? Doing good. Um, I was wondering, you know, in Daniel's dream in, in Daniel 9, where the Prince of Persia interferes with the um answer to his prayer. huh Um, I was wondering, it seems to me that so much of what's going on in Ukraine is demonic, that there's there's spiritual warfare going on. And I just wondered is there like a um demonic force behind each nation?
1: Well there there are the, the the way that I would sort of talk about this um there there are some people who speak of territorial spirits and um and there seems to be some some credence to the idea that there are certain um Spirits, based on Daniel chapter nine and Daniel chapter ten, in Daniel chapter ten, an angel struggles against a demonic adversary the, the whole time that Daniel is praying and fasting, and it wasn't until the end that uh, of of that time that that the angel finally broke away and comes to Daniel. Yeah. And so when we when we look at the hierarchy, if you will, of the nations as it unfolds in the book of Daniel. And we see Babylon and Persia and Greece and, and Rome. Um, You know, are there supernatural beings that are tasked with, with um, providing protection or, or, or let's even use the term destruction of a particular area.
2: Yeah, because Gabriel um, is the, the angel that protects
1: Israel. Right, right. So it, it isn't an outlandish thing, but but it was also this idea of territorial spirits, as it applies to geographic locations, was a term that pagans would use to 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 offer the protection you know that there was a spirit, oh. there was some sort of spirit that guarded their territory, now, the Bible doesn't explicitly delineate a hierarchy of demonic authority in the world, but we have every reason to believe that there is a demonic hierarchy in in the world but no, the Bible
2: I'm trying to wrap my mind around how any human being could do such evil as things. And well, I almost, I have to think that there's demonic spiritual warfare behind it.
1: Well, again, when you, when you look at, yeah, these images that are on TV now are just so gruesome, you know, dead people in the streets. Uh, you know, it looks like a, an apocalyptic nightmare, um, you know, and then when you push the envelope even further, and you go, "Is it possible that things could get even worse?" You know, again, when you talk about restraints, th- there, there seems to be good evidence that that as things get worse and worse, that God allows demonically motivated people to do things that you wouldn't. Otherwise, allow. So we're back to the spiritual warfare thing in Ephesians chapter six. It says that we're to stand firm against our spiritual adversaries, to remain alert and ready for battle. But the Bible also says our our struggle isn't to get against flesh and blood, but but powers and principalities of darkness. So do these powers of and and dark powers. Um, motivate people to make these horrid decisions, and I think that the answer is yes. But so, I'm—I have some problems with the term territorial spirit because yeah, some, i
2: don't think I was really thinking like that. I was just um,
1: because, yeah. Well, okay,
2: the, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Well, and so so evil that I'm 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 and hearing about
1: it. And I think one of the ways that I would wrap my head around it is, again, understand that it is evil, that there there are spiritual powers of darkness at work, but I would also be reluctant to fall into that camp of people who feel it's their duty to pray against territorial demons and spiritual warfare. That's not my job. (laughs) yeah it's not well again there's no spirit there's no scriptural justification for engaging demons or engaging um spirit beings um,
2: i've been praying just the opposite i've been praying for the lord to get a hold of their hearts
1: yeah so that's that's my point there's no yeah There's no single instance in the Bible where someone actively seeks out a demon to engage it. No. Demon-possessed individuals were encountered, but they were brought to Jesus for healing and to be cast out. So, you know, people who go looking for demons, I think, are in a whole different category. I know they're there. I don't have
2: to go looking for them, and I'd rather not... Personally
1: find them if I can avoid it so so yeah so
2: <laughs> certainly not to wrestle with
1: them yeah I, I think that the most important thing isn't whether or not a demon is territorial but again we how we are instructed in the scripture to engage in spiritual warfare
2: yeah
1: it's through prayer not confrontation Definitely. with demons yeah.
2: Thank you Gino.
1: You're welcome. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I never really got around to talking about um, the biblical hermeneutics or the you know the science and art of spiritual interpretation, but um, I, I do want to go through this list just very quickly that was written by Dr. R. A. Torrey in Principles of Biblical Interpretation, and basically he talks about Number one, get right with God yourself by the absolute surrender of your will to him. And then he says, number two, be determined to find out just what God intended to teach and not what you wish him to teach. And then he says, number three, get the most accurate text. And then number four, find the most exact literal meaning of the text. And then number five, note the exact force of each word used. And then number six, interpret the words used in any verse according to Bible usage. And then he says number seven, interpret the words of each author in the Bible with a regard to the particular usage of that author. Now, that particular thing that he's saying right there, interpret the words of each author in the Bible with a regard to the particular usage of that author, the way that Matthew or Mark or Luke or John might use a particular word might be nuanced from one author to the next. And then he talks about number eight, interpret individual verses with a regard to the context. And number nine, interpret individual passages in the light of parallel or related passages. And then he said, number 10, interpret obscure passages in the light of passages that are perfectly plain. Now that's a very good principle. That That is, interpret what is unclear by that which is clear, or the way R.A. Torrey talks up about it, interpret obscure passages in light of passages that are perfectly plain. And then number 11, he says, interpret any passage in the Bible as those who were addressed would have understood it. In other words, ask the question, how would the original audience have thought about what was being written to them versus a 21st century audience. And then he talks about, um, number 12, interpret what belongs to the Christian as belonging to the Christian. And what belongs to the Jew is belonging to the Jew. And what belongs to the Gentile as belonging to the Gentile. And number 13, 13 interpret each writer with a view to the opinions, uh, the the writer opposed and number 14 interpret poetry as poetry and interpret prose as prose and number 15 is what we talked about earlier in this program the holy spirit is the best interpreter of the bible And of course, this goes to that issue that I talked about earlier about illumination, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. 303-873-1935, that's the number. If you want to join me on the air, the question I have is, um, does the Bible give any one individual spiritual authority over another individual? And Paul, well, the writer of Hebrews, basically says in in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Another translation says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they watch over you as those who must give an account. So, again, the passage in a different translation says, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no benefit to you. Or let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So the Bible does say that God does give some individuals spiritual authority Over others, have confidence in your leaders and submit to your to their authority. In what sense? A, A spiritual leader who invites followers to sin are abusing their authority. That doesn't mean that they don't have authority. It does mean that people in authority can abuse their authority. I use the illustration of parents or police. Do police have authority? Does government have authority? Do parents have authority? Well, the answer is yes. The Bible says that God gives some individuals spiritual authority over others. There are various levels of authority in any person's life. Each of these levels involve different people in different positions of authority. And of course, we have to begin with the highest authority, which is God. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So everything that exists is created by God, and by that fact, God has ultimate authority, or what theologians call sovereignty over all things. When Moses delivered the law to the Israelites, God's sovereign authority was the basis on which they were to submit to it. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, where it says in verse 39 and therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and commandments, which I command you today that it may go well with you and your children. And so, Is Moses the authority in one sense? Yes, but remember, he derives his authority from God. When Job was wrestling with the problem of pain and suffering in his life, he acknowledged that God made everything and that no one was able to challenge his authority. The Old Testament, one of the titles reflecting this authority is the most high God. Genesis 14:22, in the New Testament, he's called the Lord of Heaven and Earth," in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. So Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, holds all authority." Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says, "And Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me." Now this creates some real problems. In the world in which we live. Because we're living in a world that if you don't just suggest, but you even promote the idea that there's an authority greater than government, people balk because of our sinful nature and because of the abuses or failures of authority that we've experienced. It makes perfect sense to me that a lot of people, most people, dare I say most people struggle with submitting to authority. So on one level that God has granted men is civil and governmental. In Romans chapter 13, Paul writes that the powers that be are ordained of God, whether rulers or believers or not, and whether they recognize it or not. Their civil authority is actually a type of spiritual authority. How do we know that? Because of Romans chapter 13. Paul literally uses the term, they are God's ministers, exercising power on God's behalf. Now that shakes up certain people. <clears throat> but again, even as God's ministers, they don't have the right to abuse their power. And so that's the other issue. Now, again, when we resist their authority, we're actually resisting God. So there's, a, there's, a, there's two different categories we need to, to think about. One is the category of authority authority. Another is the category of abuse of authority, but the Bible says in Colossians chapter three, verses 22 through 24, that our submission and service to human authority should be done. This is Paul's words, heartily as to the Lord and not to men, unquote. So another level of authority is established by God in the home. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24 says, Wives are to submit to their husbands as they submit to God, because the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. So the latter of authority is stated again in 1 Corinthians eleven, three, showing the woman submitting to the man who submits to Christ, who submits to the father. Children are supposed to submit to their parents, according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Citizens are supposed to submit to their government, according to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. And Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So I'm wondering. When, when the Bible says in Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So in matters of authority, the underlying principle is submission. In what sense? We, in humility, defer. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Some people are given authority. Some people are under authority. Perhaps the most surprising thing is that that people in positions of authority should exercise that authority with a deep sense of humility this is gino geraci thanks for joining me i'll be back taking your calls answering your questions